You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem, and I am your host, Hanok Teller. Last time we began to speak about how the Haganah, Israel, the precursor of the Israel Defense Forces, created a strike force called Palmach, which is actually an acronym for Plugot Machatz, which means strike force. It was a unique and an elite unit that was made initially to prepare against a, the event of a German invasion and brought the most talented and the brightest fighters in Palestine. This is the song of the Palmach, rendered by cantor Moshe Korn. Now let us listen to some background information about the Palmach, courtesy of the Palmach Museum located in Israel. In those days, the Palmach was a barefoot army with neither uniforms nor standard weapons, children of the underground. The Palmach was founded in May 1941. The Nazis were at the gates of the country and the Palmach was preparing for sabotage operations behind enemy lines. What's more, its paratroopers had already been dropped into occupied Europe. Those who survived wished to leave the cursed soil of Europe for their one and only refuge, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. The white paper of the British mandate stood between them and their hopes. It meant no immigration and no settlements. The Palmach undertook its most important task to date, getting the survivors to Eretz Israel. In spite of a British blockade, some 85,000 illegal immigrants arrive on dilapidated ships from Europe and North Africa. Thousands more come from Middle Eastern countries by land. The struggle against the mandate turned violent. The Palmach freed illegal immigrants from the British-run athlete detention camp, blew up radar stations, railways, police stations, bridges, and deportation ships. The British retaliated with mass arrests and countrywide searches for weapons. Hundreds of Palmach members were incarcerated, but Israel's independence was drawing nearer. The UN resolution on the establishment of a Jewish state caused an outburst of joy around the country. The last merrymakers that night met the first casualties at dawn. The Arab countries attack Israel on the day of its birth. Regular trained armies coupled with armed gangs try to shatter the Zionist dream. Under the command of Yitzhak Sadeh, Yigal Alon, and Yitzhak Rabin, the Palmach was trained to become the fighting force defending the country. They were armed primarily with courage. The young and experienced members would go on to become the infrastructure of the Israel Defense Forces.
The Arabs surround Jerusalem. Conditions in the besieged city deteriorate. Fear and destruction prevail and famine spreads. Even artillery shelling does not deter people from waiting in line for water. Palmach convoys are Jerusalem's only hope. The situation in the beginning of 1942, deep into World War II, was that Polish Jewry was exterminated. So was Russian Jewry. And this story was spreading all across Europe. When Rommel's forces reached El Amein, deep into Egypt, this is already 1942. El Amein is basically just a train station. El Alamein is 106 kilometers, that's 66 miles, west of Alexandria, and 240 kilometers, that would be 149 miles, northwest of Cairo. Rommel's great advantage was, his advantage over the British and their allies, is that his tanks had a longer range, and they could shoot at a far greater distance than the British tanks. And it was the British who awarded Rommel the moniker, the Desert Fox. By the time the British tr tanks were able to be effective and use their guns, they had already been eliminated by enemy fire. But Rommel's stand in El Alamein did not last for long, and the British, after three successive defeats, finally smashed the German advance. But those in Israel feared with great dread and fear that they would be next. So the Haganah, meaning, of course, their strike force, the Palmach, drew up plans to take over British fortresses, assuming that the British would abandon the mandate in the event of a Nazi invasion. The settlement in Israel was willing to take a daring last stand against the Nazis. And this led to a shift in the settlement's policies toward European Jewry. Up until then, the priority of those in Israel was strictly Zionism, which trumped the fate of European Jewry. But when the horrors of what was befalling European Jewry became more revealed, the Zionists recanted on their pacifism. On November 2nd, 1942, for the very first time, the Jewish Agency held a meeting devoted to the fate of beleaguered European Jewry. It published a report the next day that the Nazis were systematically annihilating Jews in the hope of exterminating the Jewish people. The day after this, a few young men gathered to decide what they could do to help save European Jewry. At this meeting arrived a stranger. He was wearing shorts and glasses, and he got up to speak and he said, As long as Palestine was not available for Jews, then the condemned Jews in Europe knew that they had nowhere to go. It was already too late for Polish Jewry, but it was not too late for Romanian and Hungarian Jewry. Thus, the British must be attacked with great force to enable the Jews who are stuck and trapped in Europe. The man who spoke was the head of Beitar in Poland. He was imprisoned by the Soviets and had just arrived in Israel. He made it out as part of the Anderson's army that was desperate for soldiers, which included they would even take uh, prisoners that were in jail. The man's name was Menachem Begin. And he was about to start the Jewish revolt against the British. The name of Begin's book is called The Revolt. Begin will soon have to go underground. He's number one, numero uno, most wanted man of the British. He's on posters throughout the country as the most wanted man. The British offered very high rewards for the capture of Begin. 
Dagon adopted many aliases and many names and disguises, and he becomes a rabbi Sassover. And in sync with this adopted name, he also dresses the role. He has a large hat about the size of a manhole cover. He wears bulletproof stockings, a long black coat, as is customary in Meir Sharim, in the very religious neighborhood within Jerusalem. And part of the role is he also delivers classes. Now, he is not the classic Talmud Chacham. He is not the quintessential scholar, religious scholar, but he is versed with many books of the Bible, and he's also somewhat acquainted with rabbinic literature. In virtually every speech that he will give later in life when he becomes a very important public leader and eventually the prime minister, he always quoted a section from the Bible. Often he would quote rabbinic sources. When he became the prime minister, he would have a weekly class, Torah class in his home on Shabbat, and the public was invited to attend. Begin's son, Benny, had no idea that his father was the feared and the despised Begin, as you cannot tell a little boy the secret of who you really are. When Menachem Begin finally came out of hiding, Benny Begin could not believe that his father was the despised man that everyone was talking about, and he was living in the same room as that despised man. The fact is, that the Nazi extermination of the Jews was not much discussed in Palestine, a fact for which the leaders of the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement, would later be criticized. A plan was hatched to parachute Jews into Europe to gather intelligence and to try and save Jewish brethren. The most famous, most famous of these parachutists was Hannah Senesh. She had been born in Hungary, came to Israel when she was in high school, and then she joined the Haganah. In March of 1944, she parachuted into Yugoslavia in the hopes of making it to her native Hungary, and the goal was to help Jews there before they were sent to the Auschwitz extermination camp. However, she was captured by the Germans on the Yugoslav-Hungarian border. She was jailed, she was tortured, and she was murdered in Budapest in 1944. Here she is, a young pretty, fearless girl, willing to sacrifice her life on behalf of her people. Thus, her story, like that of Sarah Aronson, becomes an iconic mainstay of Israeli lore. Her remains were brought to Israel in 1950, and she's buried on Mount Herzl, the most important military cemetery in Israel. The Irgun, the underground group, asked Begin to be its head. Begin was convinced that the Jews' greatest enemy after the Nazis were the British, and the Gun was not far more willing to use violence than, let's say, the Haganah against this enemy. The Gun actually was not the most extreme group, because there was yet one more group which was headed by Abraham Stern and his followers who split off from the Irgun in July 1940. They established an underground militia and took the name Lechi, which is a combination acronym of Lochame Chayrut Yisrael, Fighters for the Liberation of Israel. The acronym Lechi is the group was known, but its enemies derisively called it the Stern Gang. And here's the anthem calling for overcoming darkness and despair. And we shall yet rise again with our banner over villages and over towns.
others were not willing to launch an all-out war against the British, as long as they were fighting against the Nazis, the Lehi saw the British as an imminent enemy of the Jews of Palestine, and therefore they decided to launch intensive guerrilla warfare against the British enemy. Hence, they assassinated British leaders in Palestine, and the British, in retaliation, resorted to tactics far more horrific than the organizations they were seeking to dismantle. The British had no qualms torturing and killing those suspected of being Irgun or Stern members. On November 6, 1944, the Lehi incurred the wrath of those in Israel as two of its members, both named Eliyahu, hence they were called the two Eliyahus, assassinated the British Minister of State in the Middle East, Lord Moyne, outside his home in Cairo. At the very same time, they also shot his driver. They were immediately caught after being surrounded by an angry mob. They were convicted and they were hanged. The fact that the driver was also killed convinced many in Israel that the Lehi were a gang of killers instead of a disciplined fighting force. The Lehi were headed by Yitzchak Shamir, who later became the head of the Mossad Israel Secret Service, and eventually he will become the Prime Minister. It was Shamir who was the Prime Minister in Israel during the Gulf War. After the assassination of Lord Moyne, the British commenced what was called the Saison which means the beginning of the hunting season. They commenced hunting for all the underground members and resistance groups. So all three organizations, the Haganah, which was headed by Ben-Gurion, Lehi, which was headed by Shamir, and Ergun, headed by Begin, formed Tnata Meri, the resistance movement. Their unity and their co- cooperation sounds a little better than what was actually occurring. They did cooperate in their efforts against the British, but it wasn't a perfect cooperation. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes communications broke down, like in Deir Yassin. More about that quite later. It's worth noting that Begin's Irgun was made up of Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, of Jews of Ashkenazic of European ancestry, and Jews from North African, and also from the Arab Peninsula, which are called Svaradim. The Haganah was almost exclusively Ashkenazim, but the Irgun was much more egalitarian, which much more egalitarian than what existed in the Haganah. And this is going to be a great support for Begin later when he begins his political career. And he'll actually come to office in 1977 on the back of the Sfaradim strong support. With the end of World War II, Britain was in desperate financial straits. As the economic raven explains... After the end of World War I in 1918, the British Empire was among the victorious allies, but it had suffered huge economic losses and was no longer the illustrious industrial and military power. After the end of World War II in 1945, British Empire was again among the victorious allies, but their lead as an economic leader had diminished. The Empire of Japan captured its colonies in East Asia and Southeast Asia, the British Empire lost more of its power when the subcontinent achieved its independence and became Pakistan and India. Decolonization was inevitable. So Britain is in economic trouble, and the situation in Palestine is certainly a major headache for the mandatory authority. Britain is suffering from Cold War fears, and there is ubiquitous and Arab oil problems that become a critical factor for the British. The British still are unwilling to incur Arab wrath, and the British government does nothing to change the white paper and will do nothing to help create a Jewish state, 
that the Zionists maintained Balfour had promised them nearly three decades earlier. The United States asked Britain to allow in 100,000 Jews to Palestine, or be more accurate to say perhaps that was Truman's insistence. But as the United States had closed its doors to Jews during the war, they had very little moral authority to summon. So the real action is going to have to be on the shoulders of those in Israel itself. Those who are living in Israel step up their attempts for illegal immigration. I always stress illegal immigration according to the British perspective. Between 1945 and 1948, according to UNRWA, an UNRWA survey was conducted among the displaced persons, the DPs, that were held in camps like in Cyprus and still in Germany, wherever Jews were, because the war was over. Where were they to go? They, If they would try to go back to their homes, as we'll describe in our forthcoming episode, they will meet pogroms who don't want Jews to come back to their cities. Nazis were supposed to have murdered them. If they didn't finish the job, they are not going to offer them to go back to their own homes, which belong to them. And America and Canada and South America, not South American countries, South Africa, Australia, the entire world had closed its doors to the Jews before the war, during the war, and even after the war. After the war, America was allowing Nazis to come to America, but they were not allowing Jews, refugees, to come to America. Where were they to go? So they stayed where they were. They were in the concentration camps, and then they changed from concentration camps to displaced person camps with barbed wire as well. This time, at least rations were coming in from the Red Cross. So there was a survey was taken among all those who were left in these camps. Where did they wish to go? Would they wish to be repatriated to their homes? Would they like to go, believably, to the Soviet Union? Would they like to go to America? 98% of the DPs said they wished to travel to Palestine, and they were willing to undergo great peril to achieve this. Teams of resistance fighters would meet the boats of these DPs, then hide their rivals before they were caught, but many, many of them were indeed caught. In a devastating twist of fate, survivors of the Holocaust made it into Palestine only to be imprisoned by the British and held behind barbed wire. The British also forced the refugees to be deloused, and making them undress for a shower was almost too much for these Holocaust survivors to bear. David Ben-Gurion announced in a press conference in New York that if the British would continue to enforce the White Paper's restriction on Jewish immigration to Palestine, then all Jewish military forces in the, in the settlement, which means the Haganah, the Ergon and Etzel, as we've already described, would have no choice but to unite and fight the British with constant and brutal force. And indeed, this is what happened, and as we've described already, and this is called Tnuat Hameri, the forces of resistance. The most successful attack of this United Resistance Movement was on June 16th and 17th, 1946, when there were 11 coordinated attacks which seriously injured the road, the bridge, and the railroad system in Israel. British personnel were now isolated and crippled in Palestine. They could not move themselves, they could not move their goods, they could not move their soldiers beyond Palestine's borders. The repairs cost Britain over four million pounds sterling, which was an enormous figure at that time. Twelve days later, the British retaliated with Operation Agatha, which those in Israel labeled the Black Sabbath. The British placed Tel Aviv, Ramat Gan, Jerusalem, and Haifa under lockdown. 
As 17,000 British soldiers swept across Palestine, hunting militants, weapons, and incriminating documents, they arrested some 2,700 Jews, many from the Zionist leadership. Ben-Gurion only escaped being arrested because he was in Paris. In our next episode, we shall describe what is occurring in Europe as the Black Sabbath unfolds in Palestine. My thanks to Maddie and Alex Drucker, and my thanks as well to the great Dr. Julie Snyder, who is a key cerebral component to Teller from Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 